Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. Today's story is given to us by Owen Wister. He was well known for his Western stories, the most famous of which was The Virginian. This story, Mother, is about a young couple living in New York who wish to marry, but must wait until their means are sufficient. The groom-to-be luckily inherits a large sum, and intends to invest it wisely in order to live off the income. However, under the influence of an unscrupulous financial advisor, he begins to lose a large portion of his money in dubious investments. His wife-to-be has a more objective view of the situation, and offers sound advice. The plot draws its suspense from determining whether the advice given will work in time for the couple to be able to marry. This short story provides considerable insight into the financial and social interconnections predominant among the middle and upper classes in the quarter century that preceded the stock market crash of 1929. So it's a great history lesson for that time of our history from 1900 to 1925. I hope you enjoy it. And now Mother by Owen Wister. When handsome young Richard Field, he was very handsome and very young, announced to our assembled company that if his turn should really come to tell us a story, the story should be no invention of his fancy, but a page of truth, a chapter from his own life, in which himself was the hero, and a lovely innocent girl was the heroine, his wife at once looked extremely uncomfortable. She changed the reclining position in which she had been leaning back in her chair, and she sat erect, with a hand closed upon each arm of the chair. "'Richard,' she said, "'do you think that it is right of you to tell anyone?' "'Even friends? Anything that you've never yet confessed to me?' "'Ethel,' replied Richard, "'although I cannot promise that you will be entirely proud of my conduct "'when you have heard this episode of my past, 
"'I do say that there is nothing in it to hurt the trust you've placed in me since I've been your husband. "'Only,' he added, "'I hope that I shall not have to tell any story at all.' "'Oh, yes, you will,' we all exclaimed together, "'and the men looked eager, while the women sighed. "'The rest of us were much older than Richard. "'We were middle-aged, in fact, and human nature is so constructed "'that when it is at the age when making love keeps it busy,' It does not care so much to listen to tales of others' love-making, but the more it recedes from that period of exuberance, and ceases to have love-adventures of its own, the greater become its hunger and thirst to hear about this delicious business which it can no longer personally practice with the fluency of yore. It was for this reason that we all yearned in our middle-aged way for the tale of love which we expected from young Richard. He, on his part, repeated the hope that by the time his turn to tell a story was reached, "'We should be tired of stories, "'and prefer to spend the evening at the card-tables "'or in the music-room. "'We were a house-party, "'no brief weekend affair, "'but a gathering whose period for most of the guests "'covered a generous and leisurely ten days, "'with enough departures and arrivals "'to give that variety which is necessary "'among even the most entertaining and agreeable people. "'Our skillful hostess had assembled us in the country, "'beneath the roof of New York luxury.' "'a luxury which has come in these latter days "'to be so much more than princely. "'By day, the grounds afforded us both golf and tennis. "'The stables provided motor-cars and horses "'to ride or drive over admirable roads, "'through beautiful scenery "'that was embellished by a magnificent autumn season. "'At nightfall, the great house itself "'received us in the arms of supreme comfort, "'fed us sumptuously, and after dinner ministered to our middle-aged bodies with chairs and sofas of the highest development. The plan devised by our hostess, Mrs. Davenport, that a story should be told by one of us each evening, had met with courtesy, but not I with immediate enthusiasm. But Mrs. Davenport had chosen her guest with her usual wisdom, and after the first experiment, storytelling proved so successful that none of us would have readily abandoned it. When the time had come for Richard Field to entertain the company with a promised tale from his life experience, his hope of escaping this ordeal had altogether vanished. Mrs. Field, it had been noticed as early as breakfast time, was inclined to be nervous on her husband's account. Five years of married life had not cured her of this amiable symptom, and she made but a light meal. He, on the other hand, ate heartily and without signs of disturbance. Apparently he was not even conscious of the glances that his wife so frequently stole at him. "'Do at least have some omelette, my dear,' whispered Mrs. Davenport urgently. "'It's quite light. But Mrs. Field could summon no appetite. "'I see you are anxious about him,' Mrs. Davenport continued after breakfast. "'You are surely not afraid his story will fail to interest us.' "'No, it's not that.' "'It can't be that he's given up the one he expected to tell us "'and can think of no other.' "'Oh, no, he's going to tell that one.' "'And you don't like his choice?' "'He won't tell me what it is.' "'Mrs. Davenport put down her embroidery. "'Then, Ethel,' she said with severity, "'the fault is yours. "'When I had been five years married, "'Mr. Davenport confided everything to me.' "'So does Richard, except when I particularly ask him.' "'There it is, Ethel. "'You let him see that you want to know. "'But I do want to know. "'Richard has had such interesting experiences, "'so many of them. 
"'and I do so want him to tell a thoroughly nice one. "'There's the one when he saved a man from drowning "'just below our house, the second summer. "'And the man turned out to be a burglar "'and broke into the pantry that very night. "'And Richard caught him in the dark "'with just as much courage as he had caught him in the water, "'and just as few clothes. "'Only it was so different. "'Richard makes it quite thrilling. "'And I mentioned another to him. "'But he just went on shaving. "'And now he's gone out walking.' "'and I believe it's going to be something I would rather not hear. "'But I mean to hear it.' "'At lunch, Mrs. Field made a better meal, "'although it was clear to Mrs. Davenport "'that Richard, on returning from his walk, "'had still kept his intentions from Ethel. "'She does not manage him in the least,' "'Mrs. Davenport declared to the other ladies "'as Ethel and Richard started for an afternoon drive together. "'She will not know anything more when she brings him back. "'But in this... Mrs. Davenport did wrong to Ethel's resources. The young wife did know something more when she brought her husband back from their drive through the pleasant country. They returned looking like an engaged couple, rather than parents whose nursery was already a song of three little voices. He has told her, thought Mrs. Davenport at the first sight of them as they entered the drawing room for an afternoon tea. She does understand some things. "'and when after dinner the ladies had withdrawn to the library "'and waited for the men to finish their cigars, "'Mrs. Davenport spoke to Ethel. "'My dear, I congratulate you. "'I saw it at once.' "'But he hasn't. "'Richard hasn't told me anything.' "'Ethel! "'Then what is the matter?' "'I told him something. "'I told him that if it was going to be any story about... "'about something I shouldn't like... "'I should simply follow it with a story about him that he wouldn't like. "'Ethel, you darling!' "'Oh, yes, and I said I was sure you would all listen, "'even though I was not an author myself. "'And I have it ready, you know, and it's awfully like Richard, "'only a different side of him from the burglar one. "'But, my dear, what did he do when you—' "'This inquiry was, however, cut short by the entrance of the man.' and from the glance that came from Richard's eyes as they immediately sought out his wife, Mrs. Davenport knew that he could not have done anything very severe to Ethel when she made that threat to him during their drive. Richard at once made his way to the easy chair arranged each night in a good position for the narrator of the evening, and baptized the sing-stool by Mr. Graves. Mr. Graves was an ardent Wagnerian, and especially devoted to the master singers of Nuremberg. "'Shall we have,' he whispered to Mr. Hillard, "'a Beckmesser fiasco tonight, or will it be a Walter success?' But Mr. Hillard, besides being an author and a critic, cared little for the too literary cleverness of Mr. Graves. He therefore heavily crushed that gentleman's allusion to Wagner's opera. "'I remember,' he said, "'the singing contest between Beckmesser and Walter, "'and I doubt if we're to be afflicted with anything so dull in this house.' Richard had settled himself in the easy chair, and was looking thoughtfully at various objects in the room, while the small talk was subsiding around him. "'Why, Mr. Field,' said Mrs. Davenport, "'you look as if you could find nothing to suggest your story to you.' "'On the contrary,' said Richard, "'it is the number of things that suggest it. "'This newspaper here, that has arrived since I was last in the room,' "'has a column which reminds me very forcibly "'of the experience that I have selected to tell you. "'But I think the most appropriate of all is that picture.' "'He pointed to the largest picture on the wall and said, 
"'Breaking Home Ties is his title. "'I remember very well. "'It is a replica of the original "'that drew such crowds in the art building "'at the World's Fair.' "'While Richard was saying this, "'his wife had possessed herself of the newspaper, "'and he now observed how eagerly "'she was scanning its pages. "'It is the financial column, Ethel, "'that recalls my story.' "'Ethel, after a hopeless glance at this, "'resumed her seat near the sofa by Mrs. Davenport.' "'There were many paintings,' continued Richard, "'in that art building, of merit incomparably greater than breaking home ties, "'and yet the crowd never looked at those, because it did not understand them. "'But at any hour of the day, if you happened to pass this picture, "'it took you some time to do so. "'You could pass any of John Sargent's pictures, for instance, "'at a speed limited only by your own powers of running. "'But you could never run past—' "'breaking home ties. "'You had to work your way through the crowd in front of that, "'just as you have to do at a fire "'or a news office during a football game. "'The American people could never get enough "'of that mother kissing her boy goodbye, "'while the wagon waits at the open door "'to take him away from her "'upon his first journey into the world. "'The idea held a daily pathos for them. "'Many had themselves been through such leave-takings, "'and no word so stirs the general heart "'as the word mother.' Songwriters know this, and the artist knew it when he decided to paint Breaking Home Ties. And Mother is the title of my story tonight. Mother? This was Ethel's bewildered echo. Whose mother? She softly murmured to herself. Richard continued. It concerns the circumstances under which I became engaged to my wife. There was a movement from Ethel as she sat by the sofa. "'Not all the circumstances, of course,' the narrator continued, with a certain guarded candor in his tone. "'There are certain circumstances which naturally attend every engagement between happy and—and—and and, and devoted young people, that they keep to themselves quite carefully, in spite of the fact that anyone who has been through the experience of being engaged two or three times—there was another movement from Ethel by the sofa—or even only once, as is my case—' "'The narrator went on. "'Anybody, I say, "'who has been through the experience "'of being engaged only once, "'can form a very correct idea "'of the circumstances "'that attend the happy engagements "'of all young people. "'I imagine they prevail in all countries, "'just as the feeling about mother prevails. "'Yes, mother is the right title for my story, "'as you shall see. "'Is it not strange "'that if you add in-law to the word mother,' how immediately the sentiment of the term is altered. As strongly, indeed, as when you prefix the word step to it. But it is with neither of these composite forms of mother that any story deals. Ethel has always maintained that if I'd really understood her, it never would have happened. She says, Richard, I... My dear, you shall tell your story afterwards. "'and I promise to listen without a word until you're finished. "'Mrs. Field says that if I had understood her nature "'as a man ought to understand the girl he's been thinking about for several years, "'I should have known she cared nothing about my income. "'I didn't care. I'd have—' "'But Mr. Field checked her outburst. "'She was going to say,' said Mr. Field, "'that had I asked her to marry me when I became sure that I wished to marry her, "'she would have been willing to leave New York— 
and go to the wasteland in Michigan that was her inheritance from a grandfather, and there build a cabin and live in it with me, and that while I shot prairie chickens for dinner, she would have milked the cow which some member of the family would have been willing to give us as a wedding present, instead of a statue of the winged victory, or silver spoons and forks, had we so desired. Richard made a pause here, and looked at his wife as if he expected her to correct him. But Ethel was plainly satisfied with his statement, and he therefore continued. "'I think it is ideal when a girl is ready to do so much as that for a man. But I should not think it ideal in a man to allow the girl he loved to do it for him. Nor did I then know anything about the lands in Michigan, though this would have made no difference. Ethel had been accustomed to a house several stories high, with hot and cold water in most of them, and somebody to answer the doorbell. "'The doorbell!' exclaimed Ethel. "'I could have gone without hearing that.' "'Yes, Ethel, only to hear the welkin ring would have been enough for you, and I know that you are sincere in thinking so, and the ringing welkin is all we should have heard in Michigan. But the more truly a man loves a girl, the less can he bear taking it from an easy to a hard life. I am sure that all the men here agree with me. There was a murmur and a nod from the men, and also from Mrs. Davenport, but the other ladies gave no sign of assenting to Richard's proposition. In those days, said he, I was what in the curt parlance of the street is termed a six hundred dollar clerk, and though my ears had grown accustomed to this appellation, I never came to feel that it completely described me. In passing Tiffany's window twice each day, for my habit was to walk to and from Nassau Street, I remember that seeing a thousand-dollar clock exposed for sale caused me annoyance. Of course, my salary as a clerk brought me into no unfavorable comparison with the clock, and I doubt if I could make you understand my sometimes feeling when I passed Tiffany's window that I should like to smash the clock. I met Ethel frequently in society, dancing with her, and sitting next to her at dinners, and by the time I had dined at her own house and walked several afternoons with her, my lot as a $600 clerk began to seem very sad to me. I wrote verses about it, and about other subjects also. From an evening passed with Ethel, I would go next morning to the office and look at the other clerks. One of them was 55, and he still received $600, his wages for the last 30 years. I was then 21, and though I never despaired to the extent of believing that years would fail to increase my value to the firm by a single cent, still, for what could I hope? If my salary were there and then to be doubled, what kind of support was $1,200 to offer Ethel, with her dresses, and her dinners, and her father's carriage? For two years I was wretchedly unhappy beneath the many hours of gaiety that came to me, as to every young man. "'Those two years we could have been in Michigan,' said Ethel, "'had you understood.' "'I know. But understanding, I believe that I should do the same again. "'At the office, when not busy, I wrote more poetry "'and began also to write prose, which I found at the outset less easy. "'When my first writings were accepted, "'they were four sets of verses upon the summer resort. "'I felt that I could soon address Ethel.' "'for I had made ten dollars outside my salary. "'Had she not been in Europe that July, "'I believed that I should have spoken to her at once. "'But I sent her the paper, "'and I had the letter that she wrote in reply. "'I—' 
began Ethel, but she stopped. "'Yes, I know now that you kept the verses,' said Richard. "'My next manuscript, however, was rejected. "'Indeed, I went on offering my literary productions nearly every week "'until the following January, before a second acceptance came. "'It was twenty-five dollars this time, "'and almost made me feel again that I could handsomely support Ethel. "'But not quite. "'After the first charming elation at earning money with my pen, "'those weeks of refusal had caused me to think more soberly.' and though I was now bent upon becoming an author and leaving Nassau Street, I burned no bridges behind me, but merely filled my spare hours with writing and with showing it to Ethel. It was now that the second area of perturbation of my life came to me. I say the second, because the first had been the recent dawning belief that Ethel thought about me when I was not there to remind her of myself. This idea had stirred, but you will understand. And now, what was my proper, my honorable course? It was a positive relief that at this crisis she went to Florida. I could think more quietly. My writing had come to be quite often accepted, sometimes even solicited. Should I speak to her and ask her to wait until I could put a decent roof over her head? Or should I keep away from her until I could offer such a roof? Her father, I supposed, could do something for us, but I was not willing to be a pensioner. His business, were he generous, would be to provide cake and butter, but the bread was to be mine, and bread was still a long way off, according to New York standards. These things I thought over while she was in Florida, yet when once I should find myself with her again, I began to fear that I could not hold myself from. But these are circumstances which universal knowledge renders it needless to mention, and I will pass to the second perturbation." We'll return with our story right after these sponsor messages. And now back to Mother by Owen Wister. A sum of money was suddenly left me. Then for the first time I understood why I had during my boyhood been so periodically sent to see a cross old brother of my mother's who lived near Cold Spring on the Hudson, and whom we called Uncle Snaggletooth, when no one would hear us, of course. Uncle Godfrey for I have called him by his right name ever since, died and left me what in those old days six years ago was still a large amount. Today we understand what true riches mean. But in those bygone times, six years ago, a million dollars was a sum considerable enough to be still seen, as it were, with the naked eye. That was my bequest from Uncle Godfrey, and I felt myself to be the possessor of a fortune. At this point in Richard's narrative, a sigh escaped from Ethel. "'I know,' he immediately said, "'that money is always welcome. "'But it is certainly some consolation "'to reflect how slight a loss "'a million dollars is counted today in New York. "'And I did not lose all of it. "'I met Ethel at the train "'on our return from Florida "'and crossed with her on the ferry "'from Jersey City to Desprosses Street. "'There I was obliged to see her drive away "'in the carriage with her father.' "'Mr. Field,' said Mrs. Davenport, "'what hour did that train arrive at Jersey City?' "'Richard looked surprised. "'Why, 7.15 p.m.,' he replied, "'the 10th of March.' "'Dark!' Mrs. Davenport exclaimed. "'Mr. Field, you and Ethel were engaged "'before the ferry-boat landed at DeBrosses Street.' "'Richard and Ethel both sat straight up, "'but remained speechless.' 
"'Pardon my interruption,' said Mrs. Davenport, smiling. "'I didn't want to miss a single point in this story. "'Do go on.' "'Richard was obliged to burst out laughing, "'in which Ethel, after a moment, followed him, "'though perhaps less heartily. "'And as he continued, his blush subsided. "'With my Uncle Godfrey's legacy, "'I was no longer dependent upon my salary, "'or my pen, or my father's purse.' and I decided that with the money properly invested, I could maintain a modest establishment of my own. Ethel agreed with me entirely, and, after a little, we disclosed our plans to our families, and they met with approval. This was in April, and we thought of October or November for the wedding. It seemed long to wait, but it came near being so much longer that I grow chilly now to think of it. Of course, I went steadily on with my work at the office in Nassau Street, nor did I neglect my writing entirely. My attention, however, was now turned to the question of investing my fortune. Just round the corner from our office was the firm of Blake and Beverly, Stocks and Bonds. Thither my steps began frequently to turn. Mr. Beverly had business which brought him every week to the room of our president, and so having a sort of acquaintance with him, I felt it easier to consult him than to seek any other among the brokers to which class I was a well-nigh total stranger. He very kindly consented to be my advisor. I was well pleased to find out how much I had underrated the interest-bearing capacity of my windfall. Four percent, he cried, when I told him this was the extent of my expectations. Why, you're talking like a trustee. And then, seeing that his meaning was beyond me, he explained in his bluff, humorous manner. All a trustee cares for, you know, "'is his reputation for safety. "'It's not his own income he's nursing, "'and so he doesn't care how small he makes it, "'provided only that his investments "'would be always called safe. "'Now there are ways of being safe "'without spending any trouble or time upon it, "'and those are the ways a trustee will take. "'For example,' "'and here he arose, "'and unhooking a file of current quotations from the wall, "'placed it in my lap as I sat beside him. "'Now, here are government threes "'selling at 108... They're as safe as the United States, and if I advised you to buy them, it would cost me no thought, and my character for safety would run no risk of blemish. That's the sort of bond that a trustee recommends. But see what income it gives you, roughly speaking, about $28,000. That would not do at all, said I, thinking of Ethel and October. Certainly not for you, returned Mr. Beverly, happily. "'If you were a timorous old maid, now, "'who would really like all her money in her stocking and gold pieces, "'only she's ashamed to say so. "'But a young fellow like you with no responsibility, "'no wife, and butcher's bill, it's quite another thing.' "'Quite,' said I. "'Oh, quite.' "'Richard,' interrupted Ethel, "'do you have to make yourself out so simple?' "'My dear, you forget that I said I should invent nothing.' "'but should keep myself to actual experience. "'The part of my story that is coming now "'is one where I should be very glad "'to draw upon my imagination.' "'Mr. Beverly now ran his finger "'up and down various columns. "'Here again,' said he, "'is a typical trustee bond. "'It nets you a few thousand dollars more "'at present prices. "'New York Central and Hudson River, three and a halfs. "'Or here are West Shore's fours "'at one thirteen and five-eighths. "'but you see it scales down to pretty much the same thing. "'The sort of bond that a trustee will call safe "'does not bring the owner more than about three and one-half percent. 
"'Why, there are some six percent bonds,' I said, and I pointed them out to him. "'Selling at 137 and seven-eighths, you see,' said Mr. Beverly. "'Deducting the tax, there you are, scaled down again.' He penciled some swift calculations. "'There,' said he, and I nearly understood them. "'Now I'm not here to stop your buying that sort of petticoat and canary-bird wafer,' continued Mr. Beverly. "'It's a regular trustee move.' "'and nobody would criticize you if you made it. "'It's what I call thoughtless safety, "'and it brings you about three and a half percent, "'as I've already shown you. "'Anybody can do it.' "'These words of Mr. Beverly "'made me feel that I did not want to do "'what anybody could do. "'There's another kind of safety "'which I call thoughtful safety,' said he. "'Thoughtful, because it requires you "'to investigate properties and their earnings "'and generally to use your independent judgment "'after a good deal of work.' "'and all this a trustee greatly dislikes. "'It rewards you with five and even six percent. "'But that is no stimulus to a trustee.' "'Something in me had leaped "'when Mr. Beverly mentioned six percent. "'Again I thought of Ethel and October, "'and what a difference it would be "'to begin our modest housekeeping "'on sixty instead of forty thousand dollars a year, "'outside of what I was earning. "'Mr. Beverly now rang a bell. "'You happen to have come,' said he, "'on a morning when I can really do something for you out of the common. "'Bring me,' it was a clerk he addressed now, "'one of those petunia circulars. "'Now here you can see at a glance for yourself.' "'He began reading the prospectus rapidly aloud to me "'while I followed its paragraphs with my own eye. "'His strong, well-polished thumbnail ran heavily but speedily "'down the columns of fingers, "'and such words as gross receipts, "'increase of population, sinking fund, "'redeemable at a hundred and five after 1920, "'churned vigorously and meaninglessly through my brain. "'But I was not going to let him know "'that to understand the circular "'I should have to take it away quietly to my desk in Nassau Street "'and spend an hour with it alone. "'What is your opinion of Petunia Water Sixes?' he inquired. "'They're a lead-pipe cinch,' I immediately answered, "'and he slapped me on the knee. "'That's what I think,' he cried. "'Anyhow, I've taken twenty thousand for mother. "'You do what you like.' "'Oh, well,' said I, delighted at this confidence. "'I think I can afford to risk what you are willing to risk for your mother, Mrs. Beverly. "'Where's Petunia, did you say?' "'He pulled down a roller map on the wall as you draw down a window blind, "'and again I listened to statements that churned in my brain. "'Petunia was a new resort on the seacoast of New Hampshire.' One railway system did already connect it with both Portsmouth and Portland, but it was not a very direct connection at present. Yet in spite of this, the population had increased 23 and 7 tenths percent in five years, and now an electric railway was in construction that would double the population in the next five years. This was less than what had happened to other neighboring resorts under identical conditions. Yet with things as they now were, the company was earning 2% on its stock, which was being put into improvements. The stock was selling at 30, and if a dividend was paid next year, it would go to par. But Mr. Beverly did not counsel buying the stock. I did not let Mother have any, he said, though I took some myself. But the bonds are different. You're getting the last that will be sold at par. In three days, they'll be placed before the public at a hundred two and a half and interest. I was well pleased when I left Mr. Beverly's office. In a few days, I was still more pleased to learn that I could sell my petunia sixes for a hundred and four, if so wished. 
but I did not wish it, and Mr. Beverly told me that he should not sell his mother's unless they went to one ten. In that case, said he, it might be worth while to capitalize your premium. I like the idea of capitalizing one's premium. If you had fifty bonds that cost you par, and sold them at a hundred and ten, you would then buy at par fifty-five bonds of some other rising kind, and go on doing this until— I named no limit for this process, but my delighted mind saw visions of eighty and a hundred thousand a year, comfort at least, if not affluence in New York, and I explained to Ethel what the phrase capitalizing one's premium meant. I showed her the petunias, too, and we read what it said on the coupons aloud together. Ethel was at first not quite satisfied with the arrangement of the coupons. Thirty dollars on January 1st and thirty on July 1st, she said. That seems a long while to wait for those payments, Richard. And there are only two in every year, although you pay them a thousand dollars all at once. It doesn't seem very prompt on their part. I told her that this was the rule. But, she urged, don't you think that a man like Mr. Beverly might be able to get them to make an exception if he explained the circumstances? Other people may be satisfied with waiting for little crumbs in this way, but why should we? I soon made her understand how it was, however, and I explained many other facts about investments and the stock market to her as I learned them. It was a great pleasure to do this. We came to talk about finance even more than we talked of my writings, for during that spring I invested a good deal more rapidly than I wrote. The petunias had taken only one-twentieth of a million dollars, and though Mr. Beverly warned me to rush hastily into nothing, and pointed out the good sense of distributing my eggs in a number of baskets, still we both agreed that the sooner all my money was bringing me five or six percent, the better. I've come to think that it might be well where women taught the elements of investing as they're now taught French and music. I would not have the French and music dropped, but I would add the other. It might be more of a protection to women than being able to read a French novel, and perhaps some day we shall have it so. But of course it had been left totally out of Ethel's education, and at first she merely received my instruction and took my opinions. It was not long, however, before she began to entertain some of her own, obliging me not infrequently to reason with her. I very well remember the first occasion that this happened. We had been, as usual, talking about stocks as we walked on the Riverside Drive on a Sunday afternoon in May. Ethel had been for some moments silent. Richard? She finally began. If I had had the naming of these things, I should never have called them securities. Insecurities comes a great deal nearer what they are. What right has a thing that says on its face is worth a thousand dollars to go bobbing up and down in a way most of them do? I think that securities is almost sarcastic. And have you noticed the price of those petunias? I had, of course, noticed it, but I had not mentioned it to Ethel. I read the papers now, she explained, morning and evening. Of course, the market is a little off on account of the bank statement, but that's not enough to account for the petunias. Ethel, you are nervous, I said, and it is the papers which make you so. The petunias are a first lien on the whole property, of which the assessed valuation— What is the good, she interrupted, of a first lien on something which depends on politics for its existence, if the politicians change their minds? Did you not see that bill they're thinking of passing? I was startled by what Ethel told me, 
for the article in the paper had escaped my notice. But Mr. Beverly explained it to me in a couple of minutes. Ha! he jovially exclaimed on my entering his office on Monday morning. You want to know about petunias? They opened at 85, I see. He then ran the tape from the ticker through his clean, strong hands. Here they are again. Five thousand sold at 83. Now, if they go to 70, I'll very likely take 10,000 more for mother. It's all Frank Smith's bluff, you know. He wants a jag of the waterworks stock, more than they say they agreed he should have. So he's shaking this bill over them, which would allow the city to build its own water plant, and of course run the present company out of business. Not a thing in it. All bluff. He'll get the stock, I suppose. What's that? He broke off to a clerk who came in with a message. Wants five hundred preferred, does he? Buyer thirty? Very well. He can't have it. Say so from me. Now, he resumed to me, take a cigar, by the way, and don't buy any more petunias until I tell you the right moment. Do you see where your amalgamated electric has gone to? I had seen this. It had scored a twenty-point rise since my purchase of it, and I felt very sorry that I had not taken Mr. Beverly's advice and bought a thousand shares. It had been on a day when I had felt unaccountably cautious, and I had taken only two hundred and fifty shares of amalgamated electric. There are days when one is cautious, and days when one is venturesome, and they seem to have nothing to do with the results. "'They're going to increase the dividend,' said Mr. Beverly, as I smoked his excellent cigar. "'It's good for twenty points higher by the end of the week. I just got mother a few more shares.' I left Mr. Beverly's office the possessor of two thousand shares of amalgamated electric, and also entirely reassured about my petunias. He always made me feel happy. His keen, laughing brown eyes and crisp, well-brushed hair and big, somewhat English way of chafing. He had gone to Oxford, where he had rowed on a winning crew. Carried a sense of buoyant prosperity that went with his wiry figure and good, smart London clothes. His face was almost as tawny as an Indian's with the outdoor life that he took care to lead. I was always flattered when he could spare any time to clap me on the shoulder and crack a joke. Amalgamated Electric had risen five more points before the board closed that afternoon. This was the first news that I told Ethel. Richard, said she, I wish you would sell that stock tomorrow. But this I saw no reason for, and on Tuesday it had gained seven points further. Ethel still more strongly urged me to sell it. I must freely admit that. And the narrator paused reflectively. Thank you, Richard, said Ethel from the sofa. And I admit that I could give you no reason for my request, except that it all seemed so sudden. And yes, there was one other thing, but that was even more silly. I believe I know what you mean, replied Richard, and I shall come to it presently. If anyone was silly, it was not you. I did not sell amalgamated electric on Wednesday, and on Thursday a doubt about the increased dividend began to be circulated. The stock, nevertheless, after a forenoon of weakness, rallied. Moreover, a check for my first dividend came from the Polyopolis Heat, Light, Power, Paving, Pressing, and Packing Company. "'What a number of things it does!' exclaimed Ethel, when I showed her the company's check. "'Yes,' I replied, and quoted Browning to her. Twenty-nine distinct damnations. "'One sure, if the other fails. "'Beverly's mother has a lot of it.' 
but Ethel did not smile. Richard, she said, I do wish you had more investments with ordinary simple names, like New York and New Haven, or Chicago and Northwestern. And when I told her that I thought this was really unreasonable, she was firm. Yes, she replied. I don't like the names, not most of them, at least. Duchess and Columbia Traction sounds pretty well. And besides that, of course one knows how successful these electric railways are. But take Standard Egg Trust and the patent-pasteurized Infant Rubber Feeder Company. Why, Ethel, I exclaimed. These are both based upon great inventions. Mr. Beverly... "'but she interrupted me earnestly. "'I know about those inventions, Richard, "'for I have procured the prospectuses, "'and I wish that I could have told you "'my own feeling about them "'before you bought any of those stocks. "'I do not think you can fully have taken it in, Ethel.' "'I trust that it may not have fully taken you in,' "'she replied. "'Have you noticed what those stocks are selling for at present?' "'Of course I had noticed this. "'I had paid sixty-three for standard egg,' and it was now forty-eight. Well, eleven was the price of patent pasteurized feeder, for which I'd paid twenty. But this, Mr. Beverly assured me, was a normal and even healthy course for a new stock. Had they gone up too soon and too high, he explained, I should have suspected some crooked manipulation and advised selling at once. But this indicates a healthy absorption preliminary to a natural rise. I should not dream of letting Mother part with hers. We then had a conversation about pasteurized feeder, "'Even if you get the parents to adopt it,' she said, "'you cannot get the children. "'If they do not like the taste of the milk "'as it comes out of the bottle through the feeder, "'they will simply not take it.' "'Well,' I answered, "'old Mrs. Beverly's holding on to hers.' "'When I said this, Ethel sat with her mouth tight. "'Then she opened it and said, "'I hate that woman.' "'Hate her? "'Why, you've never so much as laid eyes on her.' "'That is not at all necessary.' I consider it indecent for a gray-haired woman with grandchildren to be speculating in the stock market every week like a regular bull or bear. Every point in this outburst of Ethel's seemed to me so unwarrantable that I was quite dazed. I sat looking at her, and her eyes filled with tears. "'Oh, Richard!' she exclaimed. "'She will ruin you, and I hate her.' "'My dear Ethel,' I replied, "'she will not, and only see how you are making it all up out of your head.' "'You've never seen her, but you speak of her as a gray-haired grandmother.' "'She must be, Richard. "'You have told me that Mr. Beverly is a married man of about forty-five. "'No doubt he has older sisters and brothers. "'But if he has not, his mother can hardly be less than sixty-five, "'and he has probably been married for several years. "'He might easily have a daughter coming out next winter, "'and a son at Harvard or Yale. "'And if their grandmother's hair is not gray,' "'That is quite as unnatural as her speculating in monopolized eggs in this way at her age. "'She must be a very unladylike person.' "'Ethel, I saw, was excited. "'Therefore I made no more point of her theories "'concerning the appearance and family circle of the old Mrs. Beverly. "'But in justice to myself, I felt obliged to remind her, first, "'that I was investing, not speculating, "'and, second, that it was Mr. Beverly's advice I was following, "'and not that of his mother.' "'Had he not spoken of her,' I said, "'I should have remained unaware of her existence.' "'She's at the bottom of it all the same,' said Ethel. "'Everything you've bought has been because she bought it.' "'That's not quite the right way to put it,' I replied. 
I was willing to buy these securities because Mr. Beverly thought so highly of them that he felt justified in— "'There's no use,' interrupted Ethel, "'in our going round this circle as if we were a pair of squirrels. I do not ask you to hate that woman for my sake, but I cannot change my own feeling. Do remember, Richard, about the city of Philip's sewer bonds. You did not want to buy them at first. You told me yourself—' "'that you thought new towns in Texas were apt to buzz suddenly and then die "'because all the people hurried away to some newer town "'and left the houses and stores standing empty. "'But Mr. Beverly's mother got some, and all your hesitation fled. "'And now I see that the Gulf, Galveston, and Little Rock "'is going to build a branch that may make Philippi a perfectly evaporated town. "'If you sold those bonds today, how much would you lose?' "'I did not enjoy telling Ethel how much, but I had to.' "'Only fifteen thousand dollars,' I said. "'Only?' said Ethel. "'Well, I hope his mother will lose a great deal more than that.' "'It is seldom that Ethel taps her foot, "'but she had begun to tap it now, "'and this inclined me to avoid any attempt at a soothing reply, "'in the hope that silence might prove still more soothing, "'and that thus we might get away from old Mrs. Beverly. "'She cannot possibly be less than sixty-five, Ethel presently announced, "'and she's far more likely to be seventy. "'I thought it best to agree to any age "'that Ethel chose to give the old lady. "'Do you suppose,' Ethel continued, "'that she does it by telephone?' "'My dearest,' I responded, "'he must do it all for her, of course, you know. "'I doubt that very much, Richard, "'and she strikes me as being the sort of character "'for whom a mere telephone would not be enough excitement.' The nerves of those people require more and more stimulants to give them any sensation at all. I believe that she sits in his private office and watches the ticker. Why not give her a ticker in her bedroom while you're about it, Ethel? I suggested. But Ethel couldn't smile. I think that's perfectly probable, she answered. And then, Oh, Richard, isn't it mean? At this I took her hand, and she— "'but again I abstain from dwelling upon those circumstances "'of the engaged which are familiar to you all. "'The change of May into June, "'and the change of June into July, "'did not mellow Ethel's bitter feelings. "'I remember the day after Petunias defaulted on their interest "'that she exclaimed, "'I hope I shall never meet her. "'We always called Mr. Beverly's mother she now. "'For if I were to meet her,' continued Ethel, "'I feel I should say something that I should regret.' "'Richard, I suppose we shall have to give up that house on Park Avenue?' "'I put a cheerful and even insular face on the matter, "'for I could not bear to see Ethel so depressed. "'But it was hard work for me. "'Some few of my investments were evidently good, "'but it always seemed as if it was into these "'that I had happened to put not much money, "'while the bulk of my fortune was entangled in the others. "'Besides the usual midsummer faintness "'that overtakes the stock market, "'my own specialties were a good deal more than faint. On the 20th of August, I took the afternoon train to spend my two weeks' holiday at Lenox, and during much of the journey, I gazed at the Wall Street edition of the afternoon paper that I'd purchased as I came to the Grand Central Station. Ethel and I read it in the evening. "'I wonder what she's buying now,' said Ethel, vindictively. "'Well, I can't help feeling sorry for her,' I answered, with as much of a smile as I could produce." "'That's so unnecessary, Richard. "'She can easily afford to gratify her gambling instinct.' "'There you go, Ethel, inventing millions for her, "'just as you invented grandchildren.' 
Not at all. Unless she constantly had money lying idle, she could not take these continued plunges. She's an old woman with few expenses, and she lives well within her income. You would hear of her entertaining if it was otherwise. So instead of conservatively investing her surplus, she makes ducks and drakes of it in her son's office. Is he at Hyde Park now? Hyde Park was where the old Beverly country seat had always been. No, I answered. He went to Europe early last month. Very likely he took her with him. She's probably at Monte Carlo. Ah, scarcely in August, I fancy. And I'll tell you what, Ethel. I've been counting it up. She's lost $24,000 in the standard egg alone. It takes a good deal of surplus to stand that. Serves her right, said Ethel. "'and I would say so to her face. "'September brought freshness to the stock market, "'but not to me. "'Mr. Beverly, like the well-to-do man that he was, "'remained away in Europe "'until October should require his presence "'as a guiding hand in the office. "'Thus I was left without his buoyant consolation "'in the face of my investments. "'Petunias were being adjusted on a 4% basis. "'Duchess and Columbia Traction was holding its own. "'I could not complain of amalgamated electric.' "'so it was now lower than when I had bought it. "'Well, I had sold it on that Wednesday in May "'when Ethel begged me, "'before the increased dividend turned out a mistake. "'I should have made money. "'But Philippi's sewers were threatened. "'Pasteurized feeders had been numb since June. "'Polyopolis heat, light, power, paving, pressing, and packing "'was going to pass its quarterly dividend, "'as Standard Egg had gone down from 63 to 7 and one-eighth. "'My million dollars on paper now? was worth in reality less than a quarter of that sum, and although we could still make both ends meet fairly well in some place where you wouldn't want to live, like Philadelphia, in New York we should drop into a pinched and dwarfed obscurity. I must say now, and I shall never forget, that Ethel during those gloomy weeks behaved much better than I did. The grayer the outlook became, the more words of hope and sense she seemed to find. She reminded me that, after all, my Uncle Godfrey's legacy had been a thing unlooked for, something out of my scheme of life that I had my youth, my salary, and my writing, and that she would wait till she was as old as Mr. Beverly's mother. It was the thought of that lady which brought from Ethel the only note of complaint she uttered in my presence during the whole dreary month. We were spending Sunday with a house party at Hyde Park and driving to church. We passed an avenue gate with a lodge, "'Rockhurst, sir,' said the coachman. "'Whose place?' I inquired. "'The old Beverly place, sir.' Ethel heard him tell me this, and as we went on, we saw a carriage and pair coming down the avenue toward the gate with that look which horses always seem to have when they're taking the family to church on a Sunday morning. "'If I see her,' said Ethel to me as we entered the door, "'I shall be unable to say my prayers.' but only young people came into the Beverly pew, and Ethel said her prayers and also sang the hymn and chants very sweetly. After the service, we strolled together in the old and lovely graveyard before starting homeward. We had told them that we should prefer to walk back. The day was beautiful, and one could see a little blue piece of the river sparkling. "'Here is where they're all buried,' said Ethel, and we paused before brown old headstones with Beverly upon them. "'Died 1750. Died 1767,' continued Ethel, reading the names and inscriptions. "'I think one doesn't mind the idea of lying in such a place as this.' 
"'Some of the young people in the pew now came along the path. "'The grandchildren,' said Ethel. "'She's probably too old to come to church, or she's in Europe.' "'The young people had brought a basket with flowers from their place, "'and now laid them over several of the grassy mounds. "'Give me some of yours,' said one to the other, presently. "'I'm not enough for grandmothers.' "'Ethel took me rather sharply by the arm. "'Did you hear that?' she asked. "'It can't, it can't be she, you know,' said I. "'He would have come back from Europe.' "'But we found that out at lunch. "'It was she, and she had been dead for fifteen years. "'Ethel and I talked it over in the train going up town on Monday morning. "'We had by that time grown calmer. "'If it is not false pretenses,' said she, "'and you cannot sue him for damages, "'and if it is not stealing or something,' "'and you cannot put him in prison. "'What are you going to do to him, Richard?' "'As this was a question which I had frequently asked myself during the night, "'having found no satisfactory answer to it, I said, "'What would you do in my place, Ethel?' "'But Ethel knew. "'I should find out when he sails "'and meet his steamer with a cowhide whip. "'Then he would sue me for damages. "'That would be nothing.' "'if you've got a few good cuts in on him.' "'Ethel,' I said, "'please follow me carefully. "'I should like dearly to whip him, "'and for the sake of argument, "'we will consider it done. "'Then comes the lawsuit. "'Then I get up and say that I beat him "'because he made me buy standard egg at sixty-three "'by telling me that his mother had some, "'when really the old lady had been dead for fifteen years. "'When I think of it in this way, "'I don't feel... "'I know.' "'interrupted Ethel. "'You're afraid of ridicule. "'All men are.' "'Had Ethel insisted, "'I believe that I should have whipped Mr. Beverly for her sake. "'But before his return, "'our destinies were brightened. "'Copper had been found near Ethel's wastelands in Michigan, "'and the family businessman "'was able to sell the property for $700,000. "'He did this so promptly "'that I ventured to ask him if delay "'might not have brought a greater price. "'Well,' he said, "'I don't know. You must seize these things. Blake and Beverly might have got tired waiting.' "'Blake and Beverly?' I exclaimed. "'So they made the purchase? Is Mr. Beverly back?' "'Just back. To tell the truth, I don't believe they're finding so much copper as they hoped.' "'This turned out to be true, and I'm not sure that the businessman had not known it all the while.' "'We looked over the property pretty thoroughly "'at the time of the Tamarack excitement,' he said. "'And then a few days more, in fact, "'it was generally known that this land had returned "'to its old state of not quite paying the taxes. "'Then I paid my visit to Mr. Beverly, "'but with no cowhide whip. "'Mr. Beverly,' said I, "'I want to announce to you my engagement to Miss Ethel Lansing, "'whose Michigan copper land you've lately acquired. "'I hope that you bought some for your mother.' "'Those,' "'concluded Mr. Richard Field, "'are the circumstances attending my engagement "'which I felt might interest you. "'And now, Ethel, tell your story, if they'll listen.' "'Richard,' said Ethel, "'that was the story I was going to tell.'" Thank you for joining us for Owen Wister's Mother, a very unusual story and not a bad lesson to learn. If you enjoy our wide mix of stories here at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, 
please do send us a kind review. We always appreciate reviews, and they help new listeners decide to give us a try. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We'll be back in just a few days. We bring new episodes every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern and every Sunday at 12 noon Eastern. So until next time, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.